everyone, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media by searching Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. And also, hey, like, subscribe, follow, whatever the thing you need to do on whatever platform that you are listening to this, please do that thing so you can keep up with all the things we're doing. And hey, leave a rating or a review, whatever you can do. We appreciate you. So uh, definitely do that. Uh, hey, this episode is going to be really fun. I got to talk to Robert Muggy. He is a pretty uh, established documentarian. He's been doing this since the late 70s. And um, I actually got to meet him at Ball State University, which is my alma mater. And uh, I studied film history in undergrad, as I mentioned several times. And uh, I took some classes with, uh, with Bob. He was he was uh, one of the guys that they would bring in for about five years or so, uh, where they would um, like they bring someone from the industry to teach people like those specifics, and Bob is one of them. And so uh, the funny thing is, even though he came in and it was largely a production thing, he ended up teaching some really awesome kind of film history related courses, uh, like a Krzysztof Kieslowski. Uh, class and a film noir class, both of which I took. I guess he did a, I think it was an Ernest Lubitsch class as well. I did not, I was not able to take that though. Uh, but his film noir class really just enhanced my love of uh, film, uh, film noir in particular, because we watched like 30 movies or something, like so many. And uh, those became, some of them became some of my favorite movies of all time. So, uh, I'm very excited uh, to uh, have you guys hear what he has to say, you know, and this is an interview where I have a feeling where I will actually shut the hell up and let someone talk because I know Bob can talk. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, and without further ado, I will uh, say some more in the outro. But uh, until then, let's see what Bob's up to. All right, everybody, I'm here with Robert Muggy. Uh, Bob, say hello. Oh, <laughs> great to see you, Austin. It's been a number of years. <laughs> yes, I kind of put you on the spot there. Yeah, I'm uh, not used to seeing you anywhere except in the in the front right in front of me in a, in a classroom, usually waving and telling me about the latest criterion uh, uh <laughs> Classic yeah. film releases you had just purchased and everything and m making me feel, oh, maybe I do belong at this school after all. <laughs> yeah, it was. They're all back there, too. All those right. Back there. Ah. <laughs> I'm pointing at my Blu-ray collection for those listening. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, I, uh, Robert Muggy's been uh, a documentarian for since the 70s, man. You've been making documentaries for a long time. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, you also taught some classes I took. So we, we go we go way back, I'll say at this point, you know, a decade or so, a little more probably. And um, and uh, Bob, I want to I want to talk a little bit about uh, before we get into the documentary specifically, how did you even get involved in making movies? You know, where did it all start? When did documentary filmmaking pop up and make you go, I want to do this? Much like you, I came into film school with various interests and was never quite sure which one would fully take the lead. Um, I actually had two key loves. One was film, 
and one was music. I know that it much like me yeah. to that as well. Uh, as our friend Matthew Yusosi can, as we were talking about before recording. Um, I studied really much more narrative film. And the dream was always, I will go out and I will write and direct feature length dramatic films. And because I love music so much, on the side, I'll make some fun little music docs. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I always liked docs okay, but it was never an obsession for me. Um, but once I got out into the world, once I I quit my MFA program at Temple University after a year because I had already, <laughs> as an undergraduate, made an hour-long documentary on a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Here I was coming into a program that was artificially stuffed with every professor at Temple University communication um, area with their favorite courses. So it, it was going to take five years to get an MFA, whereas it took two years of coursework at NYU, which would be a bigger deal uh, to have. So anyway, I quit. Um, I started writing screenplays, um, kept trying to raise funding to shoot them myself. Um, that never happened, <laughs> but I start, but I started finding money for for these smaller music films, music docs, which got bigger and bigger. Starting with one about Pulitzer Prize winning composer George Crumb um, when uh, I was 25, 26, and then that led to doing a film about uh, Mayor Frank Rizzo, uh, who was the um, the the fascist of Philadelphia, you know, on a local level, couldn't hold a candle to what Trump has become on a national <laughs> and international level. But he seemed pretty, pretty big deal at the time. And then that led to um, having gotten those films actually funded. That led to my deciding I had to finally make a film about Sun Ra, even if I had no money to make it. And then that led to my hooking up with uh, a brand new soon to come online television network in the UK called channel four. And they ended up funding uh, three of my next four films in their entirety films like Gil Scott Heron, Al Green, Ruben Blades in the middle. I did a film on Sunsplash in Jamaica, the reggae festival. And then they, they co-funded my film on Sonny Rollins. And later after I also did a film with Bob Hope and others on entertainers who entertained the troops in World War II called it called Entertaining the Troops and a couple of films in Hawaii, one on Hawaiian music and one on Hawaiian dance. Then Channel 4 co-funded, along with Dave Stewart of Eurythmics, my film Deep Blues, which just got re-released uh, six months ago. Oh, that's uh, awesome. After we re remastered it. And then it's just been a whole lot ever since, you know. Uh, you know, Bob Dylan famously said, well, I don't know how famous, I know he said it, um, <laughs> <laughs> in an interview, how when you start out, you know, everything is totally original. You're drawing from whatever's out there, whatever's in you. But after you get a few films or books or paintings, or whatever in a style takes hold. And so maybe that's a good thing or maybe because, you know, you find your voice and then you express yourself in that voice, or maybe it's a, a bad thing because you can end up 
just sort of repeating yourself too. But anyway, that's what happened. You get known for something. It becomes easier to get funding for that sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, and yes, that led to several decades of independent filmmaking, a couple of years as filmmaker in residence for Mississippi Public Broadcasting, where I made some films with Morgan Freeman and a whole lot of amazing uh, nationally known blues musicians there. And then uh, I had just happened to apply for this gig at uh, Ball State University because they had had this five year plan where they would bring in somebody to um, it is sort of rotated among subject matter, but it had rotated back to to filmmaking and they'd had somebody come in who didn't stay the full five years. He left after a year. So miraculously, this position was available. I applied. I got it. And uh, neither of us was ever totally sure what to do with the other, because <laughs> as you and I have often talked about the the university what used to be called the telecommunications department when we were there now it's finally a more rational name of media um it was more about this just sort of as doc joe told me when i came there the sort of um how did he put it uh cogs for the corporate wheel or something like oh, that okay yeah people to people to go out and and do the technical jobs um that that industry needed and i was coming in talking about art and talking about history of cinema and talking about um documenting the world around us and all these things and so we managed for five years to uh to find a a way to work together, but truthfully, we were often at odds in our goals and everything. Sure. Yeah. No, it was, I mean, that's of course where we met and, and I definitely want to get there because I have a lot to talk about with some of the experiences that we had. You're not going to question your grades, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I think but, we're past the, 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 the number deadline. of years yeah, yeah. you can get away with that. <laughs> There's a no, I, I uh, it's funny because uh, I love that they brought you in and I'll, I'll never forget taking a, a, a grad level screenwriting course uh, in TCOM and they were only doing spec scripts. Now, for everybody listening, spec scripts are essentially what a lot of new writers will do to give to studios. And that is a very specific uh, style to it and everything. And you have to do it to a T or they'll throw it away, basically, because there's just too many. So uh, we were learning They'll how to spec throw scripts. They'll probably throw it away anyway. They'll sorry, probably, throw, probably throw it away. Yeah, they probably will. But, you know, they, they try to give you uh, hope, you know, in, in uh, classes. <laughs> uh, so um, anyways, I uh, I remember being in there and my buddy uh, Charlie Eckenbarger, who's been on the show, uh, he and I, uh, <clears throat> I always wrote these unusual scripts and I would just get ripped to shreds by all of the cogs going to the industry machine, right? And uh, they would just rip it apart. I did one where um, I was just trying to... I had just watched a movie called Lock. I don't know if you ever watched that, but it all takes place in a car. It came out in like 2012, 2013. Um, well, 2013, the 2014. Whole way. I'm the I'm whole sorry. way, and it's all... It's just... Um, what is his name? Uh, the guy that played Bane in Batman. I, I, I'm space... Tom Hardy. Ah, 
Oh, uh, wow. Anyway, so it has Tom Hardy in it, and it's just him in the car, and he's calling people, uh, or people are calling him, and the whole story is told through you watching his reactions to what people on the phone are saying, and the story slowly unfolds to, uh, by the end, it's actually like a pretty powerful story. Now, it's still, <laughs> much still like, in the car? Still in the car. It never leaves. It just starts with it. It's like ends, Hitchcock, it's, Hitchcock's lifeboat. Yep, it's like lifeboat. I was gonna say um, it also reminds me of uh, something like, uh, you know, this is not the same content-wise, I guess. But uh, you've seen Lady in the Lake, the old film noir, which we'll oh, get to film noir. I, I used to I, always show clips from that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's I I I love that movie because of the experiment of it trying to do the first person. I don't know if it actually works, Absolutely. but I love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I love the experiment. I think it works it, better probably in something like. Uh, uh, dark passage where it's only the first 30 minutes but um uh but yeah so it's it's an awesome experiment but unfortunately i just don't know if it works uh to the full extent no, and i feel the same way about Locke. it made for some fun mirror shots because oh, that yeah. was the only time you saw robert montgomery was yeah. in front of the mirror yeah it's great it's great but i i agree with you i just found it really handy uh in um a couple of courses where I wanted to just at least get people thinking about what's first per what what we know what first person, second person, third person is in writing. Let's see if we can figure out what it is in cinema. And something like that is uh, is as close as you get for first person. And then I forget the name of it. Um, uh, I can't remember. There was a '60s film that I used to use for second person. And really it was sort of pushing it, but what it did, it has a narrator who's constantly saying, you did this, then you did this. And he's acting it out as this voice of yeah. God on what you did. And then third person is just everything else. Everything. Yeah. Everything yeah. else. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's clever. I love that because I wish more people knew about lady in the lake, much like Hitchcock's movies like rope or any of those that, do these experiments. I want yeah. people to see these. So even if they don't think they're perfect, it's like, think about what he's doing though. And then if you think you can do it better, do it better. Right. I don't know if you can, but try like, like, you know, make something awesome. So I bring, I bring up lady in the lake because um, I basically, sometimes those styles don't work. And I feel that way about Locke. but I'd seen Locke and it inspired me. And I wanted to make a movie where, uh, and I, I was going pretty standard. I wasn't trying to get too wild or do try to be like super unique. I was taking some tropes and I was working with them and trying to portray them in a different way. And I wrote a script about uh, a guy who has a family and he owns this, this, um, this like a uh, restaurant, this club or whatever. And there's a local, there's a local um, like crime syndicate, right. That uh, essentially muscled their way in to co-owning this business. They wanted a piece of it. And so this guy's been skimming off the top of these guys for like five or six years, and he finally has enough money where he and his family can get away. But the day that he's going to get away is the day that they find out he's been skimming. So the movie opens with him in a first-person shot, speaking of which, um, of people walking into a room and basically talking shit to him. <laughs> you know, like like you don't know what's going on yet, but eventually very, you do. Very, dr very dramatic situation. Yeah, but then what really happens set up is amazing tension right from the beginning, right from the beginning. And what happens is a series of consequences or um, uh, what's the word? Um, convenient situations. I can't. Um, it's uh, not a consequence, but it's uh, 
if something happens, it uh, doesn't matter. The point is this, uh, these, uh, this series of events, these convenient events happen um, that are coincidence. That's deus, it. This coincidence is happening. Deus machinas. Yeah. Sort yeah, of deus God intercedes <laughs> and makes something happen that works well. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of is. It's like this random, uh, these random events happen and it allows him to get away. And then the rest of the movie was a chase the first, rest movie. of the first, essentially the first act was setting up the whole story. And then the whole second act was we have to get the fuck out of here. Like, you know, like, like we have to go, but it's a lot of it was because if you're running, you're not just, you're not narrating to the audience for exposition. You know what I mean? I was very trying to be very faithful to like, no, you'll pick it up as it goes. Like you don't need to know everything. Uh, phone calls would happen and they'd be a little ambiguous, but over time they would piece together and you'd start to understand um, and I'm not saying I did this well, but um, I'm saying I was trying. And it's funny because I leave for the what did you leave for the third act? The final confrontation? Final confrontation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I never got there because I ended up just writing something else uh, because I got ripped apart because I had texting in it. Now, this is before we were commonly texting in movies and they were like, no one wants to watch someone text. I'm like. Have you seen House of Cards? Because at the time, House of Cards was the only show I'd ever seen that had texting. You know, right. and I was like, "We text all the time. It's absolutely like applicable to this time period." You know, one what I mean? of the reasons I used to like to watch, like to show Scott Pilgrim, was because it brought in everything, like that everything, everything temporary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, including so, ways like, to communicate like that. Yeah, my my point is all these all all these people that my buddy Charlie used to call my arch nemeses, <laughs> right? Um, like they they it's just like no one wanted to do anything like that. You know what yeah. I mean? It was just it was always it was either uh, Fight Club, Cabin in the Woods, and I I like Fight Club. Like don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying it was always like these key like iconic movies that people Ma- are trying to Matrix, recreate. No, Matrix, no doubt. I was just about to say the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, that was the big every, one. It's like dude, every time a student told me what their favorite film was, it was the Matrix. It's wild. So I said, well, that's great. You know, there are, there have been a few others in the course of. <laughs> History, yeah, there, there have been a few others that also inspired that one. Let's go watch those two. It'd be really yeah, fun. Yeah. Um, but anyways, anyways, back, back to uh, back to your story here. Uh, I, I love that you were interested in making narrative films. And I, I want to ask you a couple of questions about your documentaries real quick, um, because I remember when I first came into Ball State, I had a friend, actually. And this is the short film that you uh, were so kind to let me kill you in um, <clears throat> that uh, one of my buddies. Uh, yeah, I saw that as a really good sign that it's like one of my first years, maybe even my first year there. Someone wants to use me in a film. And what do they want to do? They want to kill me <laughs> on screen. And I'm thinking, is this really a snuff film? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, that, so that was my buddy, Derek. He was actually your student, but he was more of a production guy. He didn't write or anything. And I was the movie guy. I just wanted to write movies and like, because when I first came to Ball State, I wanted to I wanted to do production. I very quickly realized I'd rather just study it. And if I'm going to make some, I'll make something. Um, but uh, yeah, so like we, we did that. Um, and, uh, I remember whenever he was in that class with you for whatever this, whatever this, uh, kind of seminar production class was, I remember he said, yeah, dude, like, uh, there's this guy that just got there. That's teaching this class. His name's Robert Muggy. He like worked with Morgan Freeman or something. <laughs> and that was like the one thing I heard over and over and over is somehow people knew you worked with Morgan Freeman. So I'd be remiss what, if what? I did not ask, cause I've never asked you about it. 
But how did that project? Actually, uh, I worked with them on two projects. You did. Okay. So see, tell, like, tell, tell us about this. Just, just out of curiosity, because this is something that I've never talked to you about. But it is funny that this is how you were introduced to me by others, like multiple times. Well, that that's funny because what what I more often got directly from students is, "Oh my God, you worked with Sun Ra." Oh my God, uh, you uh, from black students. Oh my God, you worked with Gil Scott Heron. Um, yeah. Female students. Oh my God, you worked with Al Green. You know. Yeah. But what ha- what happened with Morgan Freeman is, um, uh, I had made this film deep blues which you know about which was uh the film funded by dave stewart of eurythmics and um it was uh dave wanted to pay something back to the mississippi blues artists that had influenced him when he was growing up in the north of england and um so make a long story short we worked with the late uh music writer robert palmer and we went down and did this whole thing well our 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 whole our whole theme of that was trying to push the idea that even though people think blues is dead in Mississippi, it isn't, it's still very much alive. And then after we made that film and pretty much proved the point, all the people we filmed were slowly dying off. And I was making, you know, other films about other subjects along the way, but I just more and more decided I needed to go back even though Bob had had died by this point, I needed to go back and do a film that I wanted to call Last of the Mississippi Jukes, which was going, which I saw as going back to similar sorts of juke joints and front porches and clubs and all that as the other one had, but showing how there's really very few of them left and most of the top people have since died and all that. And in 2000, I guess it was, no, 2001. 2001, I found out that uh, STARS, the cable people, had, um, S-T-A-R-Z, of course, um, had uh, acquired rights from one of my distributors to, to show both Deep Blues and another film I made in the late 90s called uh, Hellhounds on My Trail, The Afterlife of Robert Johnson, which I made in collaboration with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And um, uh, they, so I contacted them and uh, they liked the idea, but they needed a hook. They said, first of all, we can't put up as much money as Dave Stewart did for you to go all across the place and everything. And in 2001, I also was introduced to this extraordinary place in, um, in Jackson, Mississippi called the Subway Lounge, which was... A, a black owned club in the basement of an old black hotel. It was the first black hotel in very racist Jackson, Mississippi, you know, until <laughs> yeah. the forties, there was no place for black people to stay, even famous musicians or military or anything else other than like church members or from black churches or something. So midnight, every Friday and Saturday night, midnight till dawn, they'd have these unbelievable shows. They'd alternate, um, they'd alternate backup bands from week to week uh, between two of them. And then all these people would come sit in and it was just extraordinary. And um, uh, a few of us, uh, the guy who was the president of the rock and roll hall of fame at that time in Cleveland, the museum and um, 
oh, I forget, a well-known film critic who was there for the same festival too. We all went there, were blown away. So I pitched to stars that I could make it largely about this place, um, which was on its last legs after a couple of decades of, of uh, functioning. And I said, and also Morgan Freeman and his partner, Bill Luckett, um, just open, who was an attorney and later the mayor of Clarksdale, Mississippi, they've just opened this new, new club in Clarksdale called Ground Zero Blues Club. And the whole idea of it is to make it, give it all the elements of a traditional juke joint. So I said, if we film at, uh, at Ground Zero Blues Club, Morgan will be in the film and he won't charge us any money because he'll be promoting his club. That's, That's what got the film funded was Morgan being in it, even though mostly it was about Grand Zero Blues Club and other things in the region. Now, the following year, uh, 2003, I ended up being hired as filmmaker in residence by Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And I always have problems in establishments, corporate <laughs> situations, yeah. even if they're public broadcasting. But one of the key projects I did there, I came up with, um, with an idea to do something we would call Blues Divas. Because blues, like Zydeco, like a number of other traditional musical genres, is very male-dominated, and the women artists never get enough attention. So I was always trying to squeeze them into other films, but I thought, let's do one, and we can shoot it at ground zero. Morgan will host it. He'll 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 do the interviews. We'll get what turned out to be eight separate major women artists, you know, Irma Thomas, Mavis Staples, Betty LeVette, Odetta, um, Deborah Coleman, Ann Peebles, uh, Denise LaSalle. Uh, oh, and there's one other, Renee Austin, who was uh, not as well known as the others. But um, uh, we, we managed to get the utility, the electric utility called Intergy, in Mississippi, got them to put up major funding. And uh, there was a whole lot more involved, but I figured out that we could make an eight hour public television series with one hour on each of the eight women, you know, a concert and an interview for each. We could do a two hour uh, compilation film. I would edit all these things on my own after having producing, directing and writing everything. Yeah and just making it happen. And um, uh, and then also we could, I could edit long form versions of each of the eight and those that could be for home video for various reasons that never happened. Um, the, the home video, which was partly because in the eight long form program, there's a total of a hundred songs and the cost <laughs> of music publishing for a hundred songs is pretty intense. But uh, that's how I got to work uh, twice with Morgan and become good friends. And he even, um, one of the festivals that supported me most uh, over the decades has been the Denver Film Festival, which later became the Stars Denver International Film Festival because they're nice. based in Denver. And um, so uh, when we premiered, three of the 
eight long form, form programs there in 2005 and Morgan actually came along. So did the late blues artist, Deborah Coleman, uh, who performed there. But Morgan came along, appeared at all my screenings and then got a, a um, an event of his own where they showed clips from his films. And um, uh, he was interviewed on stage and then they gave him a, you know, lifetime achievement award sure. and everything so so uh yeah that's that's how that happened for what it's worth no that's awesome yeah again it was just a way that you were always introduced to me and i'd yeah. never known the story I, it's I funny never because knew i actually well i never knew the thing about uh, uh the the bob hope thing and the uh the troops thing uh, i never knew about that either um, well, which it, is it, interesting it it actually if in 1988 well, starting in 1987, I was putting together, I had made my Hawaiian music film. I was preparing in 1988 to shoot my Hawaiian dance film. Both of those were funded by the state of Hawaii. And the Hawaiian dance one quite substantially because a guy who ended up being friends of mine was a major power in Hawaiian politics. He later became uh, the governor of Hawaii. His name is Dr. Neil Abercrombie, as well as before that, the congressman from uh, from the Honolulu area um, but um, so I had made all these films funded by Channel 4 and others so I applied to Corporation for Public Broadcasting to do a series that I would call Summer Night Music where we would I would package um, six of them as uh, 90 minute programs and then then PBS would show one a week and I got the grant and PBS agreed to do it. And so while I'm hanging out at PBS there all the time, uh, I had found out from a video post house I used in Bethesda, Maryland, um, that National Endowment for the Art, I'm sorry, National Archives had all this incredible footage from World War II. Um, uh, what's, what's his name? Uh, the, uh, Frank, Frank Capra. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Had um, had been in charge of uh, all the motion picture shooting during World War II over there. And one of the things they had made was something called the Army-Navy Screen Magazine, which went out on 16 millimeter to troops around the world. And it would be like, it would have like a little instructional video, how to take apart your machine gun. And it would have a, um, a, 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 uh, uh, a funny cartoon about military life and and it might have some live performance might be some performance shot of people visiting the troops overseas more likely it would be people in the studio so i went back to pbs and i said look um i uh i found all this amazing footage i started it was a much more time consuming process back then it took months and months to find you know, go search the footage, get them to pull up what you wanted to look for. It, it would, it took, uh, yeah, it, that's why that project took me a year and a half is it just took forever to do these things. But I contacted this woman, Frances Langford, who was a big singer uh, in the like 30s, 40s. And she was part of Bob Hope's um, traveling troupe of entertainers around the world. And she told me that she could get Bob Hope to participate, that we could do a reunion 
at one of his homes in um, the LA area. And to make a long story short, that's what we did. We also had Mel Blanc and Maxine Andrews of the Andrews Sisters and Dorothy Lamore. I got to interview all these people out there. And and Mel Blanc did an answering machine message for me, which was very cool. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah. uh, But because Bob Hope was in it, they funded it. And they funded yeah. it as a pledge special, a fundraising special. But that's not how I made it, except that I put breaks in it, you know, so that they could <laughs> yeah. stop that to look for money. But yeah, uh, yeah that's how that happened. You know, I, ha I have this memoir coming out uh, this fall called um, uh, Notes from the Road, um, a, a Filmmaker's Journey Through American Music. And it's and so entertaining the troops is not included. My film on Frank Rizzo is not concluded, but uh, a bunch of things that aren't strictly music related, are not included. It's just about my 25 uh, key um, uh, music films. Um, and because they are, they do all fit together as sort of a, an overview of, of kind of traditional and avant-garde American musics and so forth. And, um, but I, I felt bad having to leave these other films out, like the Bob Hope, like the Frank Rizzo. I just couldn't have fit everything into the number of pages that a university press, like the one I'm going through, you know, would agree to. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just uh, more content for another book, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, maybe a smaller book. Yeah. Yeah. There are yeah. other stories I would like to tell, but, um, yeah, uh, actually, Actually, I have um, one other book written, which I'm dealing with another university press about hoping that they will, because I've already broken off with two previous university presses because they wanted me to change too much. Um, uh, but uh, I'm hoping this one, this one will be the one. And I've also put together a manuscript of um, thematically organized interview excerpts from the from the many, many interviews I've done for all these films with, you know, major or more esoteric musicians. Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's so, awesome. So hopefully over the next, next couple of years, this, this will just be the first of, of three, but we'll see. I'm, yeah. I'm actually now, we haven't really dealt with my whole filmmaking career, but I'm now at this point, since leaving Ball State and, and making one other big film just after that, which was Zydeco Crossroads, just another one I shot in Louisiana. I've shot a bunch in Louisiana, but um, uh, I've been in, in sort of a period of consolidation ever since where I've been making deals that allow me to go back and remaster early films and then re-release them in 2K or 4K. Um, and uh, you know, I I wanted to do the memoir to sort of give give people a way to understand my music docs in general. And the other book that I wrote is about um, my late great grandfather who came from Germany in eight, uh, 1870 at the age of 17, ended up after um, after six years in the Midwest, he ended up in Tampa, Florida, and uh, which was still just a settlement, and uh, then grew with it and became this enormously successful businessman. Um, mo it, 
the film, I mean, the book is to be called um, Saloon Man, a German immigrant, a German immigrant battles the limits of liberty, 1870 to 1915. 1915 is when he died, having owned dozens and dozens and dozens of saloons and built and owned hotels and owned a little shipping line and uh, a wholesale liquor dealership and and got himself really also was also incredibly controversial because in the midst of uh, Jim Crow segregation in the deep south he insisted on hiring partner partnering with uh and otherwise just befriending members of the black community you know he yeah. didn't care about all this this southern bs about uh this group is are you know for the yeah. good guys yeah. and these guys are the former slaves that we don't even deal with um so he was very very controversial and at times there would be a lynchings happening and he would be threatened along with his black friends and all but um but also he was controversial because he was in the liquor business and and um temperance was coming on strong yeah and it was a number of years until outright prohibition but right just months before he died in uh, 19, 1915 um t temperance effectively won out in florida and so he he was having to shut down all his saloons and everything so yeah dude that's awesome yeah, there's so many. It's, stories it's an amazing. So it's much more interesting than my own story. <laughs> I don't know why I've had an easier time getting somebody to publish my story than his because his was amazing. Yeah, no, that's it's also awesome to uncover stories like that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. whenever you probably learned about it, it was probably awesome, especially being uh, someone that was in your own family. But I want to pivot a little bit here. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the classes I took with you real quick. And that will be essentially a gateway into talking about movies at large here. Uh, Which is something remaining. we've always yeah. done. Always. Yeah. Uh, and, and I always gravitated toward the the uh, teachers and professors that I uh, could talk with on that level. You know what I mean? Um, <clears throat> so, of course, you know, uh, both of us friends of Wes Gearings. He is uh, somebody we've talked about several times on the show, especially when Matt Sosie's on here. Um, and, uh, yeah, I used to hang out with uh, Wes like an hour after every class, just like talking outside as he's trying to just go in his office, but we're just like talking about Chaplin or something, you know. Um, and <clears throat> whenever the classes I took with you, uh, the last one I took with you was a film noir class, which I want to get to, but, and we're not talking about the class per se, but just your interest in these. Um, but I know that Krzysztof Kieślowski, I just said it weird, but it's fine. Um, he is, yeah, yeah. He yeah. is one of your all time faves. Am I, am I wrong? He is. And, uh, and I'm, I'm thrilled to see, um, probably the thing he's best known for uh, his uh, three colors trilogy back in theaters, newly remastered 4k and everything. I had, I had previously bought it on regular Blu-ray and before that on DVD, you know, and, um, but, but yes, that, as you'll remember from the class, we focused on the trilogy. We focused on the Decalogue, uh, the, the 10 stories he did loosely inspired by the different, uh, by the Ten Commandments, and um, I was just—I mean, 
in some ways, that may be the strongest thing he ever did, certainly uh, philosophically and all the, the, but, but then there were another of other, a number of other uh, features he made during that period, just before the Iron Curtain faded away. And those features, as well as the short documentaries he started out making and then continued to make off and on, what was so amazing about them, as with some of the other Polish directors and other Eastern European directors, was finding ways to be political without getting censored. And yeah. there were times when he did did get censored or stuff was held back or whatever. But, you know, they always say that with artists, having some sort of limits can bring out greater creativity. And yeah. he had those great limits first of uh, of under communism until till, uh, in the late 80s, uh, you know, the walls started coming down literally and figuratively. Um, but then ironically, later he felt like the limitations of, of capitalism were just as great because then it was, was you know, financial reasons they didn't yeah. want you to do this or didn't want you to do that. But one of the things I, I love most about him, just he, he, I actually wrote this in the, um, in the epilogue of my, um, of, of my memoir. So I talk about, you know, that idea of can, must you in filmmaking, which, deals with documenting with capturing surfaces is that all there is or can great filmmakers go beyond it can they imply that which is internal in human beings can they they deal with personality and spirit and um and even spirituality and so forth and one of the things i loved about kieslowski is that he he said absolutely you can't but more than any director I've ever seen, he did. And <laughs> yeah. it was a real inspiration for me in that regard. In fact, um, in my epilogue, I talked talked about myself as a documentary filmmaker, as a often a portrait filmmaker, and certainly one dealing with music, that I said I always saw myself as a spirit catcher, my crews and me, that we weren't you know, there was much surface that we wanted to get. We wanted to film traditional musicians against the, uh, in the milieu, against the backdrop of which, which, where they lived, that their music came out of. We wanted to film where, whenever possible, the music being performed in those places, be it the Mississippi Delta, Southwest Louisiana, New Orleans, uh, Memphis, you know, by the people who created it, for the audiences that they created it for against the geography and everything that they associated with it. Um, but beyond that, I always wanted to get at, have always wanted to get at, because I'm, I'm not, to even though I've been in this consolidation period, I do still hope to make some more films yet, but <laughs> I've always tried to also go beyond that and, to deal with culture, politics, um, uh, 
society in different ways, and especially spirituality, and not just of a religious sort, but with the notion that um, that music is one of the best ways to express the human spirit. And, and so it's always been a goal for me to sort of find visual and audio ways to communicate that and build upon that and everything. Yeah, yeah. It was really interesting doing the Kislovsky class because of the reasons you're identifying now. I mean, these ideas of being able to tell a story but also show uh, aspects of either characters or narratives um, through, like you said, you know, maybe not uh, doing everything on the nose, but being able to uh, sleuthily, I'll, I'll use, yeah. I'll make up that word, um, work those way, th- those things in. And I remember we started with camera buff and we watched, dude, we watched a lot. We watched most of his features. Um, we watched, we, we watched, we watched cam- pretty much everything that was available at that time. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Camera buff, no end, blind chance, a short film about killing and love decalogue. And then the three colors, uh, double life of Veronique, of course. Yeah. Um, and I can't believe we fit all of that into a sem- like one semester. All the, all those. <laughs> I know all those. Well, I think it was like a four hour class or something. It was. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I used to drive people crazy, but it was the same way with the film noir and with the Lubitsch that the only way I can show two films and talk is my four hour class. But yeah, to me, like a film like Blue, there's just, for me, my money, there's no greater film. I mean, what he does there visually, um, the way he tells the story visually and goes beyond, well, much as he did in the film before that, which was, um, uh, what's it, The Double Life of of Veronique? Veronique, yeah, yeah. Yeah. these visual ways that he does hint at something that that ties us all together and that goes beyond what we can fully consciously know and everything. But but it was so moving in that film. You know, it starts out with this car crash where where um, Juliette Binoche loses her husband and her child and just brilliantly laid out visually and always you know, one of the things he did, which I'm sure we talked about in the class, was he would shoot things from many different angles and then he'd keep editing and editing and editing till he had as few as possible. And so they would more suggest often rather than show you literally everything that happened. He'd leave leave it to you to to put the bigger picture together in your head and everything. But her her grief and the ways of dealing with her grief at the same time that on this macro level, the Europe is coming together into the European Union. And there's this piece of music that her husband was working on. And it turns out she was actually doing much of the work without, without anybody knowing. And so, she wanted to just kill that piece of music after he died. It was like putting that whole life away. Um, but but slowly it keeps, in, in the film, you keep hearing little bits of that music. It's yep. encroaching on her consciousness. And then the guy who was his assistant, she ends up having an affair with him and he's trying to, to get her to give him what's, what they had done with the score so he could complete it 
hopefully with her help. And so all this stuff of the micro and the macro slowly come together. And at the end, she's like making love to him and that music is playing and some, there's still this incredible sadness, but, but there's this beautiful sort of a sense of resolution and of finally moving forward and everything. Just, Oh, and, and this, the use of colors, of course, with that, as you remember, the way he used blue in that film, the way he used red and red, the way he used yeah. white and white in the film white. And then at the end of red characters from all three films unexpectedly come together. And it's just extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I remember, I feel like it was blue, which is the one where Juliette Binoche, I think she's walking by like a stone wall and she just like puts her hand up oh, against it, and it's like her knuckles yeah. until they bleed. Yeah, and it's like it's like what what a what an interesting way to depict grief. Like it's not just someone yeah. crying. It's not just someone, you know. It, it's like something. Sh it's surprisingly shocking for as quiet as the film is, if yeah. I remember correctly. Minus, that, of course, like that motif of music. But yeah, that scene. It's like number one, she's numb and she's trying to feel something. Yep. But there's also almost a masochistic sense to it of I want to I want to hurt myself um, because I'm a survivor and I didn't ask to be a survivor and all, all these issues. There's so many moments like that um, in a lot of his movies, actually. But uh, Blue is great. Uh, I remember um, whenever we watched uh, all three um, something that I often get is that white is just the lesser of the three, right? And I actually had a great time with white. <laughs> it's a great film. You know, people usually assume the second film in a trilogy is the lesser. And um, there was just something, I forget where I read it, IndieWire, someplace like that. Maybe it was New York Times, I can't remember. But they were talking about the three films and it was really very a very astute analysis of the three and it was actually saying white is deceptively simple and your first time through it's like oh this is just kind of fun and but it actually has a lot of layers to it and so you were not wrong to find that one to be to be yeah. that fulfilling i love i love julie delphi too or delphi or yeah, however, uh, uh, however no, her name is Ju but yeah julie delphi Delphi, yeah. Oh, in or the Delphi. second no, one. No, it is Delphi. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in white, no. yes, yes. Julie Delphi, yeah. Uh, she's great. Uh, I, I love her, so that, that also helps. But yeah. um, it's just his shots. There's that great scene uh, sequence in white that is in every trailer or or film shot ever where she is in like a, a bridal outfit, and it's just this brilliant, like super close-up of her looking so happy. And uh, that one's kind of funny. Red and blue are bummers. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, like straight trip to Bummerville, and I, that's my jam. Like Matt Sosi yeah. always makes fun of me because I always say I live in Bummerville. Like that's where <laughs> I want to be. But like, uh, but There's white more is humor like humor in the second one, absolutely. Yeah, because of the of the love, the male love interest. Basically, it's like a goof. Yeah. Um, I but, love how uh, red red opens with going along the transatlantic cable of, of a phone. You're following it because a phone call is being made. And then the whole thing becomes about about communication and everything. And yeah, yeah, no, it's great. And I also love in red. Uh, I'm going to try to say his name, uh, Jean Louis 
Uh, I always forget to say it. Trintignant, uh, I think. Trintignant. Yeah, that looks right. That looks right. He's great. And he was in Amour, uh, which I don't know if you saw more, but that oh. movie was awesome. <laughs> saw, it, saw it at uh, at the Keystone in Indy oh, yeah. back when I still went to movie theaters pre-pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he was yeah. great, great in that. But, I mean, he's in so, so many... Oh, one of my favorites of his is uh, Bertolucci's The Conformist. Oh, he, yeah. He, he's been oh, in Oh, my God. I just realized that's the same guy. Same guy, <laughs> like 40 years earlier or something. I actually had no I I just put that together now yeah, that you yeah. say that. Dude, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. He was in we, a lot of brilliant films over the years. and But, yes, it is amazing, these these films that he was still doing in old older age. You know, my my wife and I just watched a couple of um, Sofia Loren, Marcello Mastriani, uh, De Sica directed films, um, Sunflower and Yesterday, Today and Tomorrow. And uh, I forget the name of that film that her son directed her in a couple years ago. Um, it's, we got to stream it on cable. It seems like it was early in the pandemic or something. Um, Talking about Sofia, Sofia Loren? Yeah. And so here she is, like, in her 80s, and just fucking brilliant, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so it's so... Oh, a Life Ahead. The Life Ahead. Yes, yes. I actually didn't know about this one, so that's oh, pretty you, cool, you, yeah. You must catch it. It's, it's just an amazing film, which shows there's still a whole lot of talent in that family. Um, what a gift yeah. to his mother to... Uh, and, and both ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's yeah, I, I love I, I had a good time because with uh, the Kieslowski going back to that, I had a good time with that class because um, he was a complete 100 percent blind spot to me. Like I knew about the movies that Criterion had put out. I knew the or movies like the or well, I guess uh, episodic type things like the Decalogue. Right. Um, I didn't even know about the short film about love or killing before we had the class. I only knew about the Decalogue, Three Colors and the Double Life of Ronique. And so it was like I always loved watching a filmmaker's filmography. And it's so hard with someone, say, like a Hitchcock or somebody who has so so, so prolific. Films, yeah. And there's so many of them uh, that gets really uh, tough for some people. But he had like just the right amount that you can really marathon those. Right. And I want to talk a little bit uh, before we finish up here about uh, film noir, because you you uh, you taught the film noir class, which was one of my all time favorite classes in undergrad because i got to watch film noir i got to watch two movies every class and i got to finally start knocking it out because i was a huge still am film noir is one of my all-time favorite like classic noir is so great i have so much of it back there um and i've spent just there are some of them that go out of print like uh like you showed me uh you showed us rather um Oh, why can't I think? I might that? admit Kiss, it for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Kiss of death. Only one scene, and it's the scene where he wraps the mother of the person he's trying to find up in the cord and throws her down the stairs. And I'm telling you right now, th- I loved film noir before, but one of my favorite things about film noir is you had some A-list film noir, but the B-list is where that shit is at, dude. Okay, <laughs> like because they could get away with so much more. I would uh, love and, to have shown the whole film, Kids of Death. It's it's such a great yeah. film. But you had to see pushing the woman in the wheelchair down. That the, is down shocking. Like, yeah. still to this day, 
shocking. And I show yeah. people that clip on YouTube sometimes. I bought the Twilight Time, a boutique company that does a limited run of movies. I bought the Blu-ray of Kiss of Death just because of that scene. I'd never seen it. And it was out of print, and I bought it for like $60. I was like, but I want this movie. <laughs> like, like even Widmark, if it's only for that, like, I want it. Richard Widmark, I, I don't know what he was like in real life. I'm told he was a nice guy. But on film, he can possess a demon, and never so much as in that film. My God. He can also, I mean, one of my favorite films of all time is Pickup on South Street. The Sam So Ford. good. You know, I actually, uh, I just recently got my editor, University of Louisiana at Lafayette Press, has been doing what editors do, which I don't have to put up with when I make a film, but, <laughs> but they go through every page and every paragraph and every sentence and they question this and that. And one of the things she wanted me to remove, and I just said, absolutely no way, and I I'm still waiting for her response to my responses to her original critiques and everything. <laughs> yeah. So who knows if I still am going to have a, have a book coming out this fall. Hopefully so, since we at least have the cover. Um, but um, I, I wrote in there how, you know, I was talking about my Al Green film. And there's this really emotional scene in my Al Green film where Willie Mitchell, the, who produced all his big hits, and had, they had all these gold records together. He and Al Green and Al Jackson, the drummer who, who, who died too early, they would write the songs together. And then Al Green you know, suddenly flips out. All these things happen. He decides he's only going to do gospel. So I sat Willie Mitchell down in his office, all the gold records behind him, you know, yeah. at the High Records studio, which is an old converted movie theater. At Royal Recording Studio, and uh, and he had a little turntable, and so I put "Let's Stay Together," it's an Al Green classic, of course, and I had my sound man. We started the record. I had him, and I had cameraman start out on there, and then pull out, and there's Willie Mitchell sitting there. We first we just hear the song, and then Willie just starts talking about what it was like when one day Al just said. Um, you know, I, I got to do gospel now. And Willie said, well, can't you do both? And he said, no, I can't do both. I got to do one thing and all. And so, you know, we set up, I had this sort of metaphor. At the very least, it's a theme running through the film about let's stay together. And of course, in the song, he's talking about a woman, but here, of course, it's extended to Willie and Al, and Willie yeah. would like them to stay together because they've had this huge success together, critically and artistically. Again, years later, I realized that that scene that I felt like I was staging totally on its own probably came from that scene with Thelma Ritter in in um <laughs> think about south street yeah where she's playing the it's it's in french but it turns out i looked it up it's actually not a french record it was something it was a song that uh i think it was warner's had in their library and they just did a version in french and they put it so it sounds like an edith piaf thing or something but it's not yeah. so anyway that's playing all of a sudden 
what's his name? The guy who did Man from Mancha and all that stuff. Um, oh, I can't remember yeah. his name, but yeah. he's the commie and he comes in and he's going to blow her head off while if she doesn't give up Richard Widmark's pickpocket character because he's got the mic microfilm that the commies, he stole it from the commies, pickpocketed it and everything. Yeah. And so I realized, oh my God, it's not exactly the same, but emotionally it's very similar. And the setup is very similar. The little turntable and the, and the person sitting there sad and everything. And I, I have this thing in the introduction to the book about how how all of us, whether filmmakers or anybody else, we've watched films our whole lives. We have absorbed all these images, all these themes, all these little pieces of cinema. And, and I said, for someone like me, I don't always even know when it's going to come out or where it's going to come out. So that was a sudden revelation. I can give you another one. I was... Uh, I will admit it. I am, a, <laughs> I am I am a recovering Ken Russell fan. When I was uh, when I was in in uh, you know back in the '60s, when I was late '60s, early '70s, when I was in college, Ken Russell was doing all this amazing stuff. He was one of the key influences on my own work. He was doing these uh, musical biographies, portrait films of people like Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Um, uh, uh, what's um, what's her name? The famous dance European dance. Can't help you here. All <laughs> oh, right, I forget. He did a whole bunch of these for British television, um, and uh, the one who got killed when her scarf she was wearing got caught in the wheels of her car and died. Oh my god! I can't, I can't think. Anyway, he did all these portraits of these different uh, composers, painters, writers. And then of course he did at commercial films too, of like Mahler and Liszt. And the first of those he did was, was the music lovers about Tchaikovsky. And I know it's garish in certain ways. I don't care. It's in many ways, it's one of the most brilliant films I've ever seen. And I've probably seen it over the years, 25, 30 times easily. But there's a scene in it, which is so incredible, where he's, all these people are coming to this concert he's giving. And, you know, the film is titled um, uh, Tchaikovsky and the Music Lovers, I believe. Yeah. But it's, but it's known as the Music Lovers. So Tchaikovsky's premiering this new piano concerto. So all these people come. And so as it goes through the piece, the camera keeps going back and forth, often with a camera move between Tchaikovsky up there performing and different people in the audience that we will get to know as the film goes along because they have some part in his life. They yeah. are the music lovers. Every single one of them, whether it's a female potential lover, a gay lover, um, his, uh, oh, his beloved sister, um, his assistant, all these different people. And, and so we go to these visual illustrations of their fantasies about him and their relationship and all that. And so I realized that although I, it's, I didn't have a scene like that, that when I made 
um, uh, Hellhounds on My Trail, The Afterlife of Robert Johnson, the legendary blues man who was apparently poisoned, uh, actually, I think it was August 16th. He died the same date as Elvis. I think it was August 16th of oh, 1938. Wow. He was poisoned by supposedly by a bartender uh, whose wife um, Robert Johnson had been stepping out with. But um, so there's no film of Robert Johnson. There's just these this handful of incredible songs and a couple photos. More recently, they found another one. Um, but so I knew I had to make a film. I couldn't make the film about the guy, but I could make the film about his influence, how he'd influenced people, especially in rock, but also in, in blues early on. Um, and so, and of course he had that song, Hellhound on My Trail, which is about the hounds of the devil chasing after you and all. And he yeah. had all these things about selling his soul to the devil. So I realized that my film was going to be about his influence and that all of us were the hellhounds. You know, all of us trying to make something bigger of the myth that he had sold his soul, soul to the devil and all that. And yeah. so anyway, so this is this is just how that can work, that images and ideas from past films affect all of us. And if you're working in a field of the arts, sometimes they enter your work without you immediately knowing it. But then later you realize yeah. I, I think I think that's like the reason I always pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed production students at Ball State to watch movies, because this is how you learn how to make movies. I you used have to, to watch tell them. my of students, course, yeah, good stuff in, good stuff out. It's yeah. so and, simplistic, but yeah. it's true. It's the same well, in any field. If you don't any field. learn what came before. Yeah. And and I always told students because I taught classes with Ashley Donnelly. Uh, who's been on the show. And um, one thing I told them, because the first few movies we watched, for example, in a gender and sexuality class were terrible, but they were really easy to pick out the elements that we wanted. Mm. And I always told people, even a bad movie can still be good inspiration because it tells you what novel, not to do. Right. <laughs> and a bad novel makes the best movie because you're not constantly worried about ruining this perfection of the novel. Hitchcock was yeah. always the first to say that. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm a big fan. But I have to ask you this. I, I was going to jump into uh, to some more film noir. And I have a question to finish up with film noir. But I have to ask you about this because you brought it up. Ken Russell, you said you are you said that you are uh, a recovering Ken Russell fan. I I'm have not to say really this. Recovering. I'm still I'm still hardcore. <laughs> I have to say this though. I and and, and it, most of his work is largely a uh, blind spot for me. It's something for the podcast I want to do a marathon and, of. And there's um, there's some stuff which is over the top totally Dude. because because he loved driving the critics crazy and yeah. the longer the farther he got from those original british television films which were just in many ways works of genius the more he got he'd go back and forth between stuff that was really serious and really accomplished and stuff like listomania that was basically to make you crazy even yeah. though it was based on the idea that List was in effect the first rock star, which is a which is an interesting notion, in which he and in which by having Roger Daltrey play List, 
you know, he he really played on that. But the whole movie's a cartoon. Yeah. Uh, you know, speaking of the over the top driving critics crazy, uh, you know, the the devils is something that one of the Indiana Film Critics Association guys uh, and I, uh, Joe Shearer and I watched uh, for, I think, during like the October of last year or something. First time I'd ever seen it. Um, I got my hands on the closest to an uncut version you can see of that movie. Uh, I think it's Warner Brothers or maybe Paramount. But I think it's Warner Brothers who has the actual rights and they just won't let it out. Like they're just like, we're crazy. still. Yeah, because I'm just like, dude, give it to Criterion. You know they want it, and they're gonna oh. make it look amazing. I but saw dude, it a good, I saw it a good twenty times in the early years. <laughs> dude, I'll tell you, it, it, so that came out the same year as the movie, uh, the Music Lovers, which is hilarious. But uh, the the thing is with the Devils, it starts off as this super ridiculous, over the top, almost exploitation movie, right? And I'm in for it at that point because I'm watching it like it's a horror movie. So I'm like, okay, this is wacky. Let's like watch this. It's gonna be ridiculous. But, dude, by the end, I was legit into it. Like, it was actually really incredible. And I hate that the controversy surrounding it, which I understand because of the religious ties within the U.S. and everything, that that can just still be so controversial for some people, even non-religious people. Like, seeing someone like, you know, uh, like uh, 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 nuns uh, fucking a Jesus statue. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's a pretty big deal. I get it. But that's the perfect film to show yeah. him going, taking things as far as he possibly could with violence, with sexuality, all that, while also being totally serious in what he has to say and, and brilliant in the ways in which he's saying it. Yeah. I mean, and, the, the go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say the end uh, where Oliver Reed is being uh, burned alive, which we talked about this on the podcast. That whole sequence is unbelievable. It is. Uh, I, I mean, like, like, I was legit into this. It became. It started off as this almost exploitation thing to me and turned into something actually really, really impactful. And it reminded me of, uh, did you see Paul Verhoeven's uh, Benedetta that came out last year, a couple years ago? I don't think so. I've seen uh, a number I, of his films, but I don't think I saw that one. Watch Benedetta if you get a chance. I would just—I'm not—I'm not recommending it as a great film. I just want to know what you think because well, after too I finished it, who loves to shock, one hundred percent. And this is one of those movies where the first act or the first half, maybe even, is almost jokey. Uh, it, not not a joke, but it's just kind of over the top and ridiculous. And you're just like, dude, what are you doing? You know, it's just like I don't know. Some some uh, nun goes into a bathroom and has a loud poop. You know what I mean? It's just like, why is this in here? You're being serious, and then you have like a f- woman, just like a nun farting. Like, why? How am I supposed to take this seriously, right? But then by the end, it had the devil's effect. Where by the end, I'm like, dude, this is so good. <laughs> like, yeah. you know. And so I don't think it's a great film as a whole, but it is the closest to the devils. Not as controversial, but it's the closest to the devils. I think that you can get these days. Yeah. Uh, the other was, thing about yeah. the devils is there was that few year period when a whole bunch of people were trying to shock, you know, uh, Kubrick was there with clockwork orange, uh, Ken Russell had the, the devils, um, even in its own way, something like the wild bunch, you know, brilliant as it is, it was shocking to a lot of people initially. And, there were all these choruses of the people. Exorcist. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. There are all these choruses of people saying there's too much violence, there's too much 
even violent sexuality and everything. And so these films partly got caught up in that. And of course, the thing that they always came at, uh, at Russell with, which also fit, fits, um, oh, I, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm mixing them up. I was, who's the, not Verhoeven, who's the dogma, best known of the dogma guys? Oh, Lars von Trier. Lynn Trier. I, I was thinking about him as someone who's brilliant, but always trying to shock. Yeah. Verhoeven, Antichrist. Yeah. Right. I mean, Verhoeven as well. Yeah. I mean, but, yeah. I mean, yeah. he has RoboCop. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which I, I mean, I love that movie. RoboCop I thought was lots of fun. Oh, it's awesome. I love yeah. it. It's I, I absolutely, absolutely love it. But um, yeah, it's 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 crazy. And it's it's amazing. And I'll kind of uh, kind of start wrapping us up here with this is it's amazing that if you go back prior to 1934, they were doing some relatively shocking things for that time, right? Even in the silent era, people are getting decapitated. Yeah, there's, 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 uh, there was like... That Hayes Code ruined, in many ways, you know, infantilized American cinema for a number of years after that. That's why I love, in fact, the Criterion Channel is, is great for this, because the pre-code thing right now, it I think, keeps right? it for the last several years since it started. It keeps doing pre-code stuff. Barbara Stanwyck pre-code, Myrna Loy pre-code, Gene Harlow pre-code. And so many of those films are just wonderful. And I always loved the early sound films. I, I mean, ever since I was in film school, because it's so amazing watching cinema have to remake itself. And yep. As as you know, silent film had reached its ultimate peak. There was were so many brilliant ways they were telling stories visually, and then it's no, you've got to stop and use this camera that's the size of a room and that that is so noisy you can't have the the uh, uh, microphone any any place you'd really like it and all. And watching, especially the more creative directors, as they figure out really creative ways to get around those, those challenges. Um, what was that? Yeah, that's part of what I loved about, uh, not to interrupt you, but that's part of what I loved about even some of Chaplin's thirty uh, stuff where it was during the sound era. So he was able to actually put stuff in, but he had like perfect sound and stuff. Cause it was all just dubbed over. Cause he shot it like a silent right. movie. <laughs> right. Right. Like city lights, which yeah, city lights. Perfect. Yeah, and, modern times. And modern like that. times in its different way. Um, to me, I mean, you really should get heavily into Lubitsch sometimes. And there's no more visual director. There's no wittier director. In fact, I don't know if you have access to to the New Yorker, but you might want to start with reading that essay that's in the, um, or or I'll send you the link. Um, but um, his films starting in in the silent era and some of his german silent films are just brilliant and so provocative you know women a woman dressing up like a man who then ends up getting getting um romanced by her by her uh what i forget what they call him but the guy, adult guy who's supposed to be looking after her who thinks she's a man and then it, then she finally reveals to him who she is and that she's <laughs> actually a woman he says oh Okay, uh, and, and yeah, uh, and there's a there's another one called that was like um, I want I don't 
I want to be a man or I don't want to be a man, something like that. There's another one called The Doll, which is this this guy is making um, these life-size mechanical dolls. And um, and one of them that, that the customer is supposed to come pick up gets destroyed. So his his teenage daughter pretends to be the doll because it was copied after her anyway. And then there's just all these wonderful things of what is life and sexuality and all this. But, but then, you know, he did some absolutely um, brilliant silent films in America and then just invented the movie musical with several films in a row. Yeah. And then all these brilliant films after that, you know, um, Trouble in Paradise, Designing Women, uh, 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 To Be or Not to Be, Heaven Can Can Wait. Um, uh, what's what's the Greta Garbo and um, oh, and Shop Around the Corner and oh yeah 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 uh, Nanachka. That's the Greta Garbo. Oh yeah yeah just, yeah yeah. Just films as great as any made by anyone. And it's always so interesting reading interviews with Billy Wilder, who always raves the whole time about how Lubitsch inspired him. And 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 Billy Wilder is just such a brilliant director, but he knew Lubitsch was a greater director. Like just everybody in his time worshipped Lubitsch and everything. It's, an, it's another it's another one of those uh, uh, blind spots that I've almost cherished, where it's like I don't even want to get into it until I can dig. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's that sort of a thing. Uh, but uh, Lubitsch is definitely someone I want to do. Uh, we we should just talk about movies again sometime. This has been absolutely great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. All right, everyone. That was my conversation with Robert Muggy. He is an old friend. And uh, I hope you got something out of that. There's a lot of interesting information in there. And, of course, you know, we both share a love for uh, film noir, let alone all of the other things uh, that we discussed. Um, but it was really fun talking with uh, with Bob, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to have uh, a lot of fun. Uh, what was supposed to happen last week, because I had a uh, technical issue that I could not figure out and I could not record anymore. Uh, so it just... Put a complete halt on the show uh, but i'm gonna have jake bottleri back to talk about bring me the head of alfredo garcia for next week that's the plan and then the week after i plan to have rick jimenez which i'm hoping we can get that worked out so all that said thank you all so much for listening sincerely it means a lot and uh, i love you guys thank you so much good night good luck take it easy <laughs>